How exciting. Amen. This is great. We are embarking on a new study. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Acts chapter 1. <laughs> You're all completely freaked out. I love that. Yes, we are going to study Revelation, but turn to Acts chapter 1 for a moment. Just pray, Lord, help my unbelief. <laughs> no, there's no way really to embark upon a study of the book of Revelation without framing this study in a way that's helpful. It's just, um, a, it's such a wonderful challenge, and there's great anticipation in this kind of study, and I know that many of you have been uh, telling me about your excitement and reading ahead, and, and these are wonderful days to study this tremendous revelation given to us by God. But in the book of Acts, there is, of course, um, the beginning of what I believe is best to frame up our study, and that is what the disciples are told in verse 11 of chapter 1 in the book of Acts. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The primary reason that this um, wonderful study excites our hearts is because we have been given by God the anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, there are all kinds of passages that we'll look at tonight in part of this framing up that also put fuel on that anticipation, that make this a thrill for us, not the least then of which will be the actual study itself of this great book. But it is also true that in framing this up, we have to, uh, we have to set some things in place first. Uh, studying end times is, uh, is often responded to in a variety of ways in the church. Um, and I realize that we come from a, a variety of backgrounds in this ministry here. God has given us a wonderful, rich heritage of a lot of different backgrounds. And, and uh, perhaps where you grew up and in your church, there were ways that you looked at the Scripture, in particular the book of Revelation, uh, that might be different than the person sitting next to you or even... It might be different than the doctrinal heritage of our church here at Grace Emmanuel. But it is important nonetheless to understand that so that we don't fall into uh, some, some mistakes, some errors, some habits that are not good for the body of Christ. I told you this morning, if we're going to study last things and end times, uh, we don't want to end up at each other's throats in the church. Sometimes the study of Revelation can be exceedingly uh, edifying, and other times it seems churches tend to divide over these things unnecessarily, I might add. And so I want to look at, at why this vital area of study has fallen on hard times and then give you the benefits of it so that we've set up a frame for how we're going to approach our study of the book of Revelation. I warned you this morning that we wouldn't actually get into the study of the text because there, there are some things that we need to bring to our study, principles that we need to look at and carefully embed in our hearts and minds as we approach this study. The, the study of eschatology, interestingly enough, over the last couple of years has fallen on hard times because for the most part, as 
as uh, the study has gotten difficult and as the resurging reform movement has come on the scene and there have been all kinds of different theological perspectives and, and dogmatic theology has sort of collided in the academy, um, then, then all of these systems of theology have been talked about and it has led to some division and people have just given up on the study. People have said, well, you know, it's just, it doesn't matter. It's not healthy. People argue too much about it, and so therefore, it just doesn't matter. The study of last things, the study of the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, the study of, of Scripture and books particularly like Revelation are difficult to understand. The events are difficult to line up. Chronologies are challenging to think about. And then you have Revelation itself, this final book in our canon, which, which has a, a, a type of literature uh, that is prophecy, as the, as the book itself claims, but it also then includes all kinds of things that are hard to understand at first glance, difficult symbols, mysteries. So out of frustration, people have simply given up. They don't want to study it. They just default to a view that says, well, I know Jesus is coming back. Acts 111 tells us that, and therefore, it's a thrill, and that's all I need to know. And you know the old joke. I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. That's what some people have said. Furthermore, people who otherwise affirm together that Christ will return, nevertheless, have broken fellowship at times over the particular details. And it is, in my estimation, a lot of unnecessary conflict, and it causes others to react by viewing the whole study as just too volatile for churches to undertake. Some suggest that as long as we get the gospel right, that's all we need to think about. We have a whole movement that has said we need to be together for the gospel, for which I, I rejoice and I celebrate uh, such sentiment. It's about time we got back to a biblical gospel in evangelicalism rather than this pragmatic, shallow stuff that we've been having to deal with in the circus of the church over the last four decades. But at the same time, while we, we commend coming together for the gospel, it is more important to come together around the revelation of Christ, which includes the whole counsel of God. If we're together for the gospel, <clears throat> we're together for Christ. And if we're together for Christ, we're together for the revelation of Christ. And if we're together for the revelation of Christ, then it behooves us to press in where Christ takes us in his word. We shouldn't be avoiding the study of last things, the doctrine of, as some of you might be just learning, eschatology eschatos, end times, last things, final things. We shouldn't avoid this study. Some have said we shouldn't put um, particular details in our doctrinal statements. The thought is that Christian fellowship gets minimized if you hold formally to one particular view. Well, look, if, if you have a view, you ought to hold to it. If you, as a church with elders and leaders, uh, develop a doctrinal statement and you have a view, you ought to put that in there. That tells everybody where you're at. It tells everybody uh, what's important as you look at the Scriptures. It tells everybody what's behind it in terms of your interpretive method. And we'll talk more about that as time goes on. Obviously, some say, God didn't include enough clarity to make such distinctions. Well, either way, you have to bring your 
interpretive principles to the scriptures, and the scriptures have a lot to say about the coming of Christ and the end times. It's not ever been a good posture to say, well, we're just going to agree on the bare minimum of the essentials, because what that does is it causes people then to not go where the scriptures take them. And they become afraid to study the whole counsel of God. They become afraid of Q&As. They become afraid of discussion, of sitting down together and opening the Bible and having disagreements. Our culture, by the way, is so infected with the idea that any disagreement means an attack, that has leaked into the church or flooded into the church so that whenever we discuss theology, somehow it has to be that, that you can never actually disagree in a straightforward manner or you've somehow attacked a person. Listen, we have a seminary here. We have a lot of young guys developing a lot of convictions and stretching their minds and learning how to apply interpretive principles to the Scriptures, and, and nothing is off limits. We, we chase it all down. We go after where the Scriptures take us, and, and yet we're still developing. We're still learning. We're still honing our skills. You can't be afraid of that environment. When we come to the book of Revelation, I'm going to teach you what I believe it means, and that is going to mean an interpretive process. And if you come from a background that has a system that has different beliefs about that, you, you can't get offended at that. You need to listen, and you need to think, and you need to open your Bible, and you need to work your way through it together. It would probably be good for us to have some frequent question and answer times, wouldn't it, throughout this study? Because I know there will be a lot on your mind that you want to talk about that sometimes my sermon won't get to. So we risk it. We risk it. We go after it. It's not important that we, that we land on every issue and be dogmatic about every position, but it is important that we pursue God's Word. And then in the collision of views and in the disagreement, we learn to be charitable and yet thorough. Charitable, but thorough. And we leave no stone unturned with the pursuit of our understanding of what God has said. There's no reason then to claim to be together for the gospel if we're not willing to come together for the study of Scripture. Now let me also say that I believe that the doctrine of last things in Scripture is shrouded to some degree in some mystery, things that are difficult to understand, particularly as to the specifics, timing, exact details, precise locations, and, and even named individuals. And so I believe that Christians ought to affirm together that Christ will come just as, he, just as they'd seen him go, he will return in that same way, so it will be a bodily return of Christ, and it will be to set up his kingdom on earth. Our church is premillennial and futuristic in its premillennial view. That's always been the view of this church. Uh, we'll talk more uh, next time a little bit as we define the way Revelation gets framed up, and we'll talk a little bit about you know, the whole argument of dogmatic theology, covenantalism, dispensation. We're not going to be able to do a treatise on all that because we do need to get to the text itself. But I, I will frame up some of that next time briefly before we jump into the first verses of Revelation uh, in our next study. But I do believe that we can agree together with what Acts 1.11 says, that he will return, it will be a bodily return, and he will rule, and he will rule over his redeemed people forever. 
And so any kind of bitterness toward others or broken fellowship should never happen over these issues. Absolutely should never happen. Some of this is obscure. Some of it is shrouded in mystery. Some of it, the answers of which we won't be able to to definitively prove until we meet Christ. But there's so much beyond that position, so much we can know, and it will be fun. It's exciting. It's a thrill and and a great, great challenge. Now, Mark 13, 32 and 33 gives us then... uh, a, a wonderful sort of uh, parameter, uh, 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 something that halts us as to all that you might be tempted to do in your mind and heart with people who want to go out and look at all the details and get all the specifics and apply it to current events. Okay, we are not prophecy mongers. We don't study the book of Revelation because we want to find out the signs of the times and and uh, know the exact dates. Mark 13, 32 and 33, of that day and hour, speaking of the coming of Christ, the setting up of his kingdom and the judgment of God, of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Of the day... Of the hour, no one knows. It's such a crack up when you see these books and articles and, you know, I remember years ago, some of you young people wouldn't remember, but there was a book published, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. (laughs) And then there was a revised edition in 89. I mean, hello. Of the day and the hour, no one knows. Take heed then, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time is. And we'll talk, of course, in the course of our study about the Olivet Discourse and Matthew 25 and why you have a particular section of that where signs are going to be obvious to the generations in there that's there when they begin. And at the other end of the spectrum in the Scriptures, there is this sense of imminence and it will happen when you do not know and you cannot appoint the time and guess the day and the hour. So if you can't know the details of the time and the hour of Christ's return, etc., then why is it important to study the future at all? Why should we spend time exploring the topic and studying this great, great book if it's just going to end up in a bunch of mystery and a lot of people have abandoned the study because they say it, it's just too, too much mystery, you're never going to know the details, it's not important. Well, despite the limitations that God imposed upon the subject of his revelation, he did reveal a lot of things about the future. And he's made many things very clear, and he has given us specific implications for our lives. So all I want to do tonight is is put together some principles that will help us in our approach to this study. These should be in the backs of our minds at all times. The scriptures themselves outline for us six reasons why this subject is vital to study and to understand. Six reasons why the, this subject of the last times, last things, the coming of Christ, and even books like Revelation where there is much mystery, six reasons why it's vital to study it and to seek to understand it. I've already given the first one away. It's important to study the future because when you explore the subject, revelation itself is esteemed. 
Revelation is esteemed. In other words, if God revealed it in Scripture, we should go after it. And I love the fact that in this ministry we have a seminary, but it is also true that this pulpit represents a passion for pressing in even where God's Word has left some things obscure. Why? Because it esteems God as the revealer and us as those who search Him out. We don't make up revelation. We cannot come up with it on our own. God's revelation stands outside of His people. It is objective, and He speaks it to us, and we're called to respond to it. If it's in the canon, it is for exploration. It is for pressing in. It is for study because it humbles us. It causes us to esteem what God says. It is not important then if I get into some conflict with someone over the details of when Christ will return or what revelation means. My comfort zone doesn't matter. If it's in the scriptures, we press in together. If it's there, we explore it together. If I don't understand interpretive principles properly, I need to learn interpretive principles properly. It esteems God's Word. If I end up being wrong or incorrect, and a brother or sister comes along and says, I've done some study, this is, this is how the interpretive principles need to be applied here, and this yields a different view, that's important for me to humble myself under the Word of God properly understood because it esteems the revelation of God. It humbles the human heart. It's amazing, isn't it, how... Conflict in our day and age, disagreement, leads us to some sort of uh, barrier to put up walls with one another, to be afraid to be disagreed with or afraid to be exposed. I mean, it's amazing. In fact, the more, the more public the nature of your teaching, the more it spreads on the internet and social media. Uh, if you teach something incorrect, the more the temptation when it's corrected to not want to admit it. Because we're proud. We don't like being exposed as having taught something incorrect. Who would want to? This is God's Word. We don't want to mess it up. And yet that's how we learn and grow we humble ourselves under God's word because it is to be esteemed and where it is difficult to understand, we are foolish to imagine that we can either understand it quickly and easily without hard work or just walk away from it as if it isn't important to look at. Matthew 4, verse 4, man does not live by bread alone but by what? Oh, every word. Oh, huh, that's interesting. Book of Revelation has a whole bunch of words. You don't like it? Symbolic? <laughs> We live by those words. How are you going to live by that? Oh, I don't understand it. I'm afraid to read it. Oh, I'm not afraid to read it. You should read it. Whatever you don't understand, just know those are words you must learn to understand because we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What a humbling thing. Acts 20, 27, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, Paul said, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose of God. That included the doctrine of last things, the study of end times. And God knew when he gave us the revelation that he would leave us with quite a lot of mystery surrounding the coming events. 
But he also told us in the scriptures to be unashamed workmen, rightly dividing the truth. Isn't that interesting? I give you all this revelation. There's mystery to it. You're going to have to press into it. Some things will be very hard to understand, as was admitted by the apostles themselves, and yet you're to rightly divide it. You're to cut it straight. You're to be an unashamed workman. I like that. It humbles us. God knew that he never intended to answer all of our questions. That's true. We, uh, when we talk about the fallacies of interpretation, we sometimes come to a passage and we want it to answer questions that it's not intending to answer. We call it in uh, exegetical studies a purpose fallacy. If you come to a passage in your English Bible and you're reading it and it's about a particular topic, you sometimes want that passage to be a treatise on the whole topic, answering every question about the topic, and God doesn't do that. He just talks about it, addresses it from the framework he wants to, and then he leaves, and the topic is over, and you sit there frustrated because you wanted all your personal questions answered. You wanted God to do a personal eternal Q&A with you in the Scriptures. It's humbling to come to the Scriptures and know that I'm going to be pressing in until I meet Jesus. There is the whole counsel of God for which I am now responsible to pass on, and I'm to be an unashamed workman rightly dividing it. I'm okay with the fact that God never intended to answer all of my questions or satisfy what I think a passage ought to purpose to do. God calls us to plumb the depths as far as Scripture will take us. And so we want to be careful, diligent, faithful to look into these things with humility so as to let the Word take us as far as it takes us. In fact, New Testament doctrinal books address the future. Every New Testament letter which deals with the foundational doctrine also references the future or addresses at least some aspect of what's to come. And so it is included as a thread through the texts of the Word of God. You say, well, what about texts that are obscure and just really make it very, very difficult to close the gap, to close the theological loops, to make a nice tight system? Doesn't that mean that we should just, you know, not bother with making an issue out of those things? Not necessarily. Obscure texts do not negate the study of the future. God's revealed what he's revealed. We acknowledge up front, we, we can't be as dogmatic or as convinced about future things as we are about the person and work of Christ. That's okay. I know who Christ is. The Bible is clear about that. I know that his work in salvation is clear. I'm okay with that. But when it comes to when he's going to come and how he's going to come and the dynamics of the kingdom and those things that are given here in the book of Revelation, it's not as clear. So I have to back off the dogmatism a bit. I have to back off how convinced I am. There must be charity, yet thoroughness. But we can, and we must study the issues and let the Word of God take us. I confess to you right up front that I, the views that I hold continue to become more and more firm as I study these issues in the Word. But I must always remember that all of the precise details or the exact day of Christ's return, all those particulars about the individual world leaders in power when Christ returns, the identity of the Antichrist, the precise places, those things are not spelled out with that much clarity. I'm content to submit to God's plan. I don't resonate with people who set dates. 
I don't resonate with those who want to make eschatology the litmus test for fellowship. I don't resonate with that. <clears throat> Nor do I resonate with those who get frustrated, and, and out of that frustration over the mystery of the subject, they ignore it altogether. I love what J.C. Ryle said in this regard. I do not say that nobody can be saved who doesn't agree with me about prophecy. That would be good. <laughs> I'm not infallible, he says. I'm very sensible that holier and better men than myself do not see these subjects with my eyes and think me utterly mistaken. I condemn nobody. I judge nobody. I only ask liberty to hold and state distinctly my own views. The day will decide who is right. It is the new heart and faith in Christ's blood which are absolutely necessary to salvation. And the man who knows these things experientially may be wrong about prophecy, but he will not miss heaven, end quote. I love that. That is the position we hold to here. But I'm sure as I preach the book of Revelation, there are some of you with your background and your own uh, interpretive principles and how you've come to conclusions, you will not agree with that. It's okay. It doesn't bother me. I'm not bothered by that. I mean, if you stand up and shout during the service, yeah, we might get a little bothered by that. And a couple of cute deacons will come over there and whisk you away and have a little meeting with you in Christian love, of course. But I'm not bothered by whether or not our views at this church are held by everyone. That's all right. We're okay with that. And, and in today's uh, theological environment, <clears throat> there are some strongly held views that collide, and, and I'll try to work my way through some of those as we go through <clears throat> the text. So it'll be fun. I think I understand and have spent, you know, months and months, let alone several years of, of looking into these other views and <clears throat> how to interpret passages on the end times. So I'll try to frame those things up for you as we go through the study. It should be fun. If I touch on one of your views or, or your system or framework and I, you think I've misrepresented it, you can just see me afterwards and, and help me understand uh, those things a little bit better. That would, be, that would be great. So the first principle is we esteem revelation, we press in. It's okay. And we do it charitably but thoroughly. Secondly... When you study the, the doctrine of last things, obedience then is established. Obedience is established. In other words, believers are commanded to eagerly long for the return of Christ. Romans 8, 23. Paul says, and not only this, but we ourselves also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Look, God gave us the study of last things to anticipate what the angels told the disciples in Acts 1.11. This same Jesus will return as you've seen him go. He is going to come. And we are to anticipate it. So all this groaning, all of this difficulty in life, the first fruits of the Spirit walking us through all these challenges is to create and incite and fuel an appetite for the return of Jesus Christ. And so it establishes and it grounds our obedience. It drives our love for the return of Christ, our hope. Romans 8.25, if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. 1 Corinthians 1.7, Paul says to the Corinthians, you don't lack in any gift. 
you're awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. We've talked about this before. Do you long for the return of Christ? I don't mean because you, you're just tired of sin. I'm tired of that too. And I can't wait till we're with Christ in sinless holiness. And I'm not just talking about the fact that you see our world wasting away and our country dying, and for those reasons you want Christ to return. I understand that. That's a part of this whole dynamic. But I mean, are you eagerly waiting for the appearing of Jesus Christ in glory? The appearing of it. We're called to, and when you study these things in Scripture, it challenges and charges and recharges your obedience in this area. It detaches you from this earth properly. You're here, you live here, you're in the world, but it detaches you properly from being of the world. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Beloved, it is not here. Your citizenship is not in America. Your practical civil responsibility as a citizen is with this country, but your citizenship, your ultimate belonging, your place is not here. For which, he says, also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 28, same thing. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, and he'll appear to those who eagerly wait for him. Believers are commanded to have in their hearts an eager awaiting. You want to make that eagerness stronger? You want to fuel it? You want to inject it with life? Study the doctrine of last things. Read those passages. Read the prophets. Read Revelation. Read Paul's discussion in 1 Thessalonians 4 about the catching away of the church. Read the discussion in 2 Thessalonians about all of the end times difficulty that's coming. Read Jesus' Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Read about the signs of the coming and read Revelation. Read it. You'll get eager. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, the eschatology that Paul taught to this new church had them hoping and waiting and anticipating and eagerly looking for the return of Christ. There's a call to eagerly watch and even patiently wait in James chapter 5, verse 7 and 9. You know, sometimes we, we just fall off of either side of this. Uh, sometimes we're not even thinking about the second coming at all and we're really attached to this earth and other times we're no earthly good because we're up on our housetop saying, why haven't you come yet? Neither is good. We're to eagerly wait but patiently wait. We watch and we wait, James 5, 7 and 9. That leads to a third benefit in your sanctification, and that is that your hope is enlarged. Your, your waiting and anticipation gets fueled, but your hope then becomes enlarged. Notice 1 Peter chapter 1, just again giving you a framework for how we're going to approach the study of the book of Revelation. 1 Peter chapter 1, I love this. So, Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercies caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
to obtain an inheritance. And then some features of the inheritance. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It won't fade away. So it cannot be destroyed. It cannot be stained. And it cannot erode. And it is reserved in heaven for you. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so in this, you're greatly rejoicing, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you're distressed by various trials. What's the ultimate purpose? Verse 7, I love this. So that the proof of your faith which is more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, here it is, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen, that passage enlarges your hope and culminates in the return of Christ where you will have praise and glory and honor because your faith is proven. It was reserved. It didn't fade away. It didn't become defiled. It didn't get destroyed. Wow. And so though you've not seen him, verse 8, you love him. I haven't seen Christ, but I love him because I still... I still have the faith he gave. And granted, it's still there. It's still growing. How do I know? My hope gets enlarged. The more I study about his return, the more I study his word, the more my heart anticipates it. Yes, the world's going downhill. Yes, we're losing all these great comforts and things we had in this culture. Doesn't that drive you to anticipate Christ? Not so that you can get out of the trouble merely. That's true. We all want out. But until he comes, his timing is perfect. And in the meantime, your hope is enlarged because you don't walk away from the faith. Your faith is strong. It's proven. The proof of it results ultimately in praise and glory at his revealing. And so right now, while you don't see him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Verse 8, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. Of course, my hope is enlarged. We wait eagerly, Romans 8, 23 says, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. I groan within myself because I'm awaiting the, the time when my inside will match my outside. And all the groaning will be done. All the thoughts that explode into your mind that are wicked, that you hate, will be done. All of the hard attitudes that just rise up in you that you've never been able to quite subdue in some consistent way, that's all going to be done. All of the infighting and the hatred, all of the evil that the world perpetrates, all of the crime on your cell phone that you could see list over and over again, all of it's over, done. The sin in your own heart and the way that we dishonor our Savior, all of it will be done. We eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So your hope is enlarged. Look at 1 John chapter 3. First time I ever studied 1 John, uh, it was actually, uh, I, I had to take a beginning Greek class Many, many years ago, I think it was around 1987, and uh, we had to translate 1 John. And so I loved translating 1 John, but when I got to 1 John 3, 2, 
I mean, it was an enlarging of my hope. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it's not yet appeared what we will be, but we know this, that when he appears, we're going to be like him. <laughs> For we shall see him just as he is. What does that mean? That doesn't mean merely that you're going to see Christ and say, oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's what he looked like. No. You're going to see him as he is. What does that mean? You get to look into the glory of Christ and not be destroyed. Why? Because you're going to be perfected in holiness. It's like he prayed in John 17. Father, bring them home that they may see my glory. I want them to be with me so they can look directly into my glory as those who've been redeemed and experience what that's like for creatures to be in perfect harmony with the pure blazing glory of God and it will fill them, it will fill their minds and their hearts and nothing will be able to take that away from us. We'll see him as he is. I mean the verse just stops you and enlarges your hope. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm not hearing pages. Come on. I mean, you're probably on your iPad or whatever that thing is that you're running around with, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. First in verse 3, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For if, after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. What's he going to do? He's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see it. This enlarges your hope, beloved. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Who is this Jesus? He is our life. Number four, your purity, or we might say your sanctification, your sanctified life is empowered by the study of the return of Christ. Purification of life results. 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There is in the study of the return of Christ this wonderful um, anticipation, this enlarged hope which then leads your mind and your heart to immediately begin thinking about whether or not you are an honor to him, whether you are re being renewed into his likeness, whether or not you have his agenda, his heartbeat, his walk, his purity, whether you know his word, whether his word is on your tongue, whether your sins are being subdued by his power, whether you're walking in his spirit, 
Your mind and heart begin to go there when you study the return of Christ. Romans 13 is a great text on this, by the way. Romans chapter 13, just to give you another passage to study or read in your own time. I love this, Romans 13, verse 11. Do this, that is to say, don't do any wrong to a neighbor, for love is the fulfillment of the law, and do this, love people like that, knowing the time. Knowing the time. You know something about the return of Christ. You know that it could come at any time. You know that Jesus Christ will come in bodily form. He will set up his kingdom. And knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. And then this little line, for now is salvation nearer to us than when we believed. Yep, every day. Every day just marching toward the glorious return of Christ. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. There it is. There's the therefore. Look, because you know this about the time, every day is marching toward Christ. Then lay aside those deeds. Again, get up tomorrow and take a shot at those deeds again and in the power of the Spirit, subdue them a little more again. Why? Because you know it's coming. The return of Christ is coming. You're to be as useful as you can be. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Right. Leave the old things. Christ is coming. Leave the old destructive things. Christ is going to judge those things. Don't Immerse yourself in the old things for which Christ died and against which he will come in power and judgment. No, get rid of those things. And verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You remember in Matthew 25 when Jesus was preaching the Olivet Discourse, he talked about the virgins and there were those virgins who, who hadn't prepared, foolish virgins who slept when the invitation came. And then later, because they wanted to live for themselves, later when, when God had invited those who would be a part of his salvation into the feast, they were locked out. Why? Carousing, casual, disinterested loved themselves, loved the world, attached here, wanted what they wanted, weren't listening, weren't responding. No, Christians know the time is near. It's ticking toward Christ's return. Every day we keep striving so that we can live for more of his glory. And when he comes, then we will be found walking in him, striving to honor him and not going back to these things that that are listed by Paul here. It leads to purification of life. It leads to diligence in your labor. Don't turn there, but listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 9. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you like a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of day. 
We're not of night, nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. There it is. There's this diligence in labor and purification of life that happens when you study the return of Christ. You become alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. We are of the day. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen hearts, James said in James chapter 5, verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Strengthen hearts. Be patient. Strengthen somebody's heart. It changes your diligence. It energizes your concentration on the right things. It detaches you properly from this life in terms of imagining that this is the termination of everything. And you all know 2 Peter 3 where Peter said, look, mockers come and they say, where's the promise of his coming? But he said, all these things, since they're to be destroyed in this way by fire, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? What's your disposition? What's your perspective? You're to conduct yourself in holiness and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Hastening it. Wow, that's interesting. The people of God looking for his return, praying for his return, not so that we can have our comfort and, and finally get rid of all the discomfort, but so that Christ is honored and glorified. It changes your diligence, the way you look at life. Because these things are going to melt with intense heat and it's going to be destroyed this way and a new heaven and new earth is coming, then you ought to be holy in your conduct and godliness, looking for it, hastening it. I love that. So sanctification is empowered. Your, the, the revelation of God is esteemed. Your obedience is grounded. Your hope is enlarged. Your sanctification is empowered in terms of purity of life and diligence in your focus and concentration. Number five, your evangelism then is emboldened. Your evangelism changes. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being what? Ready. Consecrate your hearts. As the Lord of glory masters your heart and your mind more and more each day, and you're sanctifying Christ as Lord in your hearts, you're always ready to make a defense, ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you. And you do it with gentleness and you do it with reverence, but you're ready. Philippians 2.14, do all things without throwing up arguments against God or grumbling or disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless, innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Here it is, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Why? Because you hold fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, Paul says, I may have cause to glory because I didn't run in vain when I gave you the gospel. You're a light. Your evangelism is boldened. And finally, number six, just as we kind of tie this off a little bit tonight, preparation for next week, discipleship cranks up. Discipleship engages. 
it full-on engages, you start becoming an encouragement to others. As you see the day drawing near, the writer of Hebrews said, chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, as you see the day drawing near, you are to think about and consider ways to crank each other up in, in walking with Christ. That's a free translation. <laughs> stimulate one another. How to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I mean, I love that about a body of Christ, ours particularly, but I, I, some of my friends have this, the same organic life in the church where you cannot be here without someone wanting to come alongside and engage. They're going to engage you. How you doing? How can I strengthen you? How can I encourage you? How can I love you? How can I encourage you to be loving and to love like Christ? How can I encourage you in greater good deeds, righteous deeds, Christ-like deeds? How can I do that? And I don't want you to forsake the assembly. I'm pulling you in. I know you like to stay on the fringes when you're in a season of sin. We're pulling you in because we don't want you to forsake the assembling as is the habit of some, but you're encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Look, I don't know when Christ is going to return. That's the beauty of it. It could be any time. It's certainly fixed by the Father. It will happen. It's as certain as can be, and my discipleship is engaged because it is drawing near. Each day, what can I do tomorrow that will cause someone else to have greater consideration for loving the Lord, loving others, and doing righteous things for his honor? I love 1 Peter 4, 7 to 10. The end of all things is at hand. All right, Peter wrote that 2,000 years ago. The end of all things is at hand. Well, of course, of course, 2,000 years ago, it seems like a long time to us, but to God is nothing. In eternity, compared to eternity, is nothing. The end of all things is at hand. It was at hand when Peter wrote it. It's at hand today, even more so. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Be hospitable to one another, and as each has received a gift, employ it. We've looked at that passage many times. Our discipleship, our use of our gifts, our encouragement of one another, our coming alongside one another is driven by a study of last things. It's driven by it. I, I believe that we should be a local fellowship and a congregation that esteems revelation so much that we're not afraid to press into all the mysterious wonders of what God wrote. We're not afraid of that. In fact, I love it when a visitor comes here and somebody said recently, a couple weeks ago, they came here and they said people were turning pages in their Bible. They hadn't seen that before. I know, I'm just saying. It's not what people are used to in other places. I love the fact, not in a prideful way, but in a way that esteems revelation, that when we come, no passage is too difficult, too obscure, too challenging. No doctrinal idea or, or conviction or systematic theology or mode of interpretation is too difficult to explore. We're not afraid of it. And in doing so, everything elevates. Your hope gets enlarged. Your, your life in Christ gets motivated. 
Your obedience gets grounded further. Your love for one another starts to strengthen. Your diligence cranks up. Your love for purity cranks up. And your encouragement of one another in the discipleship and then therefore scattering it to evangelize, all that cranks up. That's how we approach this, beloved. We're not afraid. We're not afraid of it. I won't give you sort of the different views of the structure because our time is gone. I'll give that next time. I'll tell you a little bit about the approach we're going to take, a little bit about the hermeneutical approach that we we have always believed in as a church, we're committed to as a seminary to teach uh, to our people. You need to know that. Don't be afraid of the word hermeneutic. It just means a set of principles by which the scriptures have to be interpreted. We're going to tell you the approach we take. It won't necessarily be the approach some of you are used to from your background, but I'll tell you why it's important that we take this approach. I'll give all that to you next time. I'll give you a basic structure of the book, and then we're going to jump into what is one of the most wonderfully rich openings of any of the the books in the canon in the revelation that's been given to us, this wonderful first section here in the glory of Jesus Christ that's expressed. We'll, we'll jump into that right at the end of next week's message. But just for tonight, I, I just want to encourage you with, with these wonderful words by J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle, of course, believed that... Um, that the book of Revelation was yet future, though perhaps not as much future as I would. In other words, he didn't believe all of it was as unfulfilled as perhaps I might see it. But nonetheless, he did believe that it wasn't fulfilled way back when in 70 AD, like you might see in a, in a preterist view of Revelation. He, he did believe that it was future, that it was prophecy about the second coming of Christ and the future events surrounding his second coming. But when you read his work on this, there are, there are moments, and, uh, and I'll belabor this for a moment because I think it's worth it, there are moments here that, that put some of this urgency into perspective, and I can't resist reading a little bit of it as we close our time tonight. J.C. Ryle says this in his chapter called Watch. Reader, there will be an end of all this when Christ returns to this world. The light of that day will at length show everything in its true colors. The scales will fall from the poor worldling's eyes. The value of the soul will flash on his astonished mind. The utter uselessness of a mere nominal Christianity will burst upon him like a thunderstorm. The blessedness of regeneration and faith in Christ and a holy walk will shine before him like those words, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Perez, on the wall of the Babylonian palace. The veil will fall from his face. He will discover that the godly have been the wise and that he has played the fool exceedingly. And just as Saul wanted Samuel when it was too late and Belshazzar sent for Daniel when the kingdom was about to be taken from him, so will the ungodly turn to the very men they once mocked and despised and cry to them, give us of your oil for our lamps are gone out. But as there will be a complete change in the feelings of the ungodly in the day of Christ's second advent, so will there also be a complete change in their position. Hope the plank to which they now cling and on which they generally depend to the very last, hope will entirely 
will be entirely taken away in that awful day. They will seek salvation with earnestness but will not be able to find it. They will run hither and thither in a vain search for the oil of grace. They will knock loudly at the door of mercy and get no answer. They will cry, Lord, Lord, open to us, but all to no purpose. They will discover to their sorrow that opportunities once let slip can never be regained and that the notion of universal mercy always to be obtained is a mere delusion of the devil. Who does not know that thousands are urged to pray and repent now who never attempt it? They mean to try one day, perhaps. Like Felix, they hope for a convenient season. They fancy it will never be too late to seek the Lord. But there is a time coming when prayer shall be heard no longer and repentance shall be unveiling, unavailing. There is a time when the door by which Manasseh and Saul the persecutor entered and shall be shut and opened no more. There's a time when the fountain in which Magdalene and John Newton and thousands of others were washed and made clean, shall be sealed forever. There is a time. Yes, reader, men may come to this, and many will come to this in the day of Christ's appearing. They will ask and not receive. They will seek and not find. They will knock, and the door shall not be opened to them. Alas, indeed, that so it should be. Woe to the man who puts off seeking this manna till the Lord's day of return. Like Israel of old, he will find none. Woe to the man who goes to buy oil when he ought to be burning it. Like the foolish virgins, he will find himself shut out from the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, that professing Christians would consider these things. Powerful reminder that as we study this great return of Christ explained for us in these powerful chapters of this book, it is all for the purpose of exciting our hearts for the return of Christ and increasing our urgency with those we love for prayer because when Christ returns, that will be it. There will be no more opportunity. And so we're in that place that wonderful season where he has not yet returned. I want him to return, but I'm in the same tension you are. Lord, return so that we don't have to sin anymore, and yet at the same time, when you return, there will be no more grace dispensed. And we still have loved ones and friends and lost people around us that need Christ. When he returns, that will be it. That will be it for eternity. That's it. It's over. Not another generation, not another moment. How rich will the study be for us to walk through this? I invite you to read it, to get familiar with it. Don't worry about how much it doesn't answer. Just expose your heart to it over and over again and let the sanctification process begin for you in the study of this. And if you want to argue the particulars, it'll be fun to argue it. In Christian love and charity... And uh, I hope that you'll pray for me as I walk us through the structure and the interpretation of the book. This is the richest study um, I think our church will have been through thus far. And we've had a lot of wonderful studies. This should thrill our hearts. So I'm very, very excited. Pray for me. Um, got a lot of keen minds in the room, and all of us have, uh, to one degree or another, um, gone through aspects of the return of Christ. So this should be really, really fun. 
and it should enlarge our faith in all the ways that I mentioned. So that's how we want to approach it. That's our framework. I pray that you'll, you'll work on each of those principles as we study it. All right, that's just a brief introduction, half an introduction, next message, and then the second half we jump in to the beginning of the prologue uh, as it unfolds in Revelation 1. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for tonight. Just this reminder that the Scriptures have so much to say about your return and how it ought to cause in us an eager anticipation. We're much too tied to this earth. We're much too casual about this. And so in the course of our life, in the, in the daily things that you give us to do and to enjoy, there needs to be an undercurrent, an alertness, a sober-mindedness, a framework that anticipates where your revelation is esteemed and no matter how mysterious or obscure a passage, no matter how, how many questions of our own that are yet unanswered, we humble ourselves under your truth and study it together and enjoy it and humble our hearts underneath what we learn and, and as we bump into mystery, allowing that to cause our pride to be crushed and to trust you. Establish our obedience and cement our, our love for the truth and our diligence in the study. Make us more faithful students of Scripture as, as we learn how to look at this particular kind of uh, Bible literature, this wonderful prophecy. And then, Lord, increase our hope, enlarge it, purify our lives with it, make us more diligent cause us to be strong in our passion for souls and our evangelism should increase. Help us to understand those relationships where you've given us influence and let the readiness of the gospel and, and even the nearness of your return every day nearer, let it drive us to be more fervent in these things. And Lord, then let us let us be driven to disciple one another. As we study your return and we anticipate it, may we pass on that urgency to come alongside one another and we get dragged down and we have baggage and we get attached to things that aren't important. Help us help one another pull out of these things and rise above these, these earthly cares and distractions to put these things in perspective, to encourage one another to greater righteousness for your sake, to holy lives, to more fervent love. Lord, don't let this study be merely some sort of fascination. Don't let it become some sort of academic exercise, an attempt to prove our positions and to debate. And don't let it become something fearful for us. May it become, as every other exposition has become in our church, uh, an opportunity to have our hearts filled with the truth and our minds saturated and our love for you matured, deepened, and richly blessed so that you indeed might have all the glory and the honor. And that as we look into the eyes of the world around us, 
May we ache for them. May our hearts be struck within us that you will in that day return and there will be no more opportunity or hope for them. And may we as a church be a, a bright, bright light of the gospel. Bring people here who don't know you, not for the fascination of the study of this book, but for the divine appointment that it is to be in the midst of your people as we study it, as we learn of all that is to come. And Lord, use it. Use it to break hearts, to open blind eyes before it's too late. And we lay this study before you and even in this introduction with these principles that become the framework for our study, I pray that you'd keep us on track. Help us grow together, we pray, for your honor's sake and for the exaltation of your word. Amen.